And in your Bible this morning, congregation, we would call your attention to Genesis chapter 17. We'll read the chapter in its entirety and we'll focus our attention this morning especially upon verse 7. You can find that on pages 16 and 17 uh, in your pew Bible. Genesis 17, and as we read this, and no doubt many of you will know this, this text or this passage is referenced by uh, the form that we have read for the administration of baptism as one of the key texts to understanding the covenant of grace and also our children's inclusion within that covenant of grace. So we read together the inspired Word of God from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house, And he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at the set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, 
and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And again it is to verse 7 especially that we turn our attention this morning, where the Lord God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. In congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning as we have the opportunity, not only once again, a privileged opportunity, to turn our attention to the reading and to the expounding and to the hearing of the Word of God, we've also been given a great privilege. A privilege that I hope and trust and pray we never take for granted. And that is the privilege of having the Word supported in our midst by the visible display of the administration of the sign and the seal of baptism. And it is my hope, desire, and prayer that we as a congregation and we as the people of God might always come into the corporate assembly, the assembly of the saints of God on the festive day of rest, that is on the Sabbath day, that we would always gather together here with a sense of excitement, a sense of holy expectation, a sense of joy, a sense of wonder. But especially so when the sacrament of baptism is displayed. When to speak... Uh, somewhat ceremoniously, when the font of baptism is set before us and its water is visibly seen by our eyes and maybe even heard by our ears as the drops of water fall within the basin and as we see them being placed upon the forehead of a covenant child. Then also, it is our hope and our prayer and our desire that our hearts might in some way leap for joy as we contemplate the wonderful grace of our covenantal Lord. But to ensure all of this, we must understand, we must understand with growing maturity and growing knowledge, the basic truth, the basic doctrine of the covenant of grace. So we want to turn our attention briefly this morning to that truth as it is revealed in Genesis 17, verse 7, with this theme, the Lord's covenant with Abraham. Uh, we'll notice as we unfold that theme, first of all this morning, the description of this covenant. And then secondly, the, the essence of this covenant. And then thirdly, the response to this covenant. So the Lord's, or Yahweh's, the God who is and always has been exactly what He will be. And, and, that, and that word Yahweh, as it's translated in our Bibles with all capitalized letters, puts all of the emphasis on the fact that God is an eternal God and that He is an unchangeable God in His person, in His plans, and in His purposes. I am the Lord and I do not change, He says, through the prophet. Therefore, we are not consumed. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. So the unchangeableness of our covenant Lord is not just some mere abstract theological truth that we ponder from time to time, but it is that which gives us hope, that which gives us confidence as we continue to walk in a world that seems to be ever-changing. So the Lord's covenant with Abraham, will notice 
the description, the essence, and then the response to this covenant. First of all, then, the description of this covenant. And here we deal with the word that is actually used in Genesis 17 and numerous other places. You might even say innumerable other places within Scripture. This word covenant. The word covenant, we understand not just simply some type of cold contractual agreement as you find perhaps in the business world. This is not some type of treaty just written out uh, with all of the formula of the legalities of our day. But rather, by the word covenant, there is this idea, there is this reality, this concept of, of an agreement between two parties or you might say between two persons, and that's clearly evident as the Lord talks with Abraham. And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but there are two parties, there are two persons, if we may use that language. There is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is Abraham represented as the father of all believers. And there is an agreement uh, that is established between them that is to result in a relationship of fellowship. That includes promises and obligations. But it is a relationship that is not just a cold contractual agreement, but that rather is to be a warm and vibrant relationship of fellowship and of a lifelong, an eternal fellowship. And building upon passages in the New Testament, such as what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, we see the reality of the covenant. Or at least we ought to see the reality of the covenant relationship displayed, especially within Christian marriage. Now you and I understand, hopefully, that marriage is not just simply a business contract. I mean, imagine a young man who has set his eye and his heart upon a young woman, and he's going to propose marriage to her. And he comes and he says, uh, you know, dear, I went to the lawyer the other day and I had an agreement drafted up and here's all the legal terminology. And if you would read this and maybe have your lawyer also review it and maybe get back to me in a week or so and, and indicate whether or not you are willing to enter into this agreement. Well, the young lady no doubt would be disappointed and the father of the young lady probably would be shocked. Uh, and hopefully there would be some type of intervention before such a relationship would be entered into because that is not the essence of a marriage covenant. Nor is that the essence of the covenant of grace. And you'll notice that we add that phrase, a covenant of grace, because it is grace, congregation, that is the motivation for the Lord coming to Abraham. And through Abraham, all of His descendants. It is only grace, and we must always remember that grace is an undeserved favor. An undeserved favor that God has for the elect as He views them from all of eternity, but also in the historical manifestation of time as He views them as chosen and redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so this is a relationship that is not earned by Abraham. It's not earned by the descendants of Abraham. It's not earned by us. It's not earned by our children. All human merit must forever be banished from the concept of the covenant of grace. But pastorally a word, because there is always the dangerous tendency that we have to bring some idea of our own merit or our own worth 
into the maintenance of this relationship. There's always that dangerous Pharisee who lives in the heart of every single one of us. And we may think, and we may know all of the theological terminology, and so we speak about a covenant of grace, but practically, maybe even in the secret corners of our hearts, we turn it at least a little bit into a covenant of human merit. And as we not only have seen the waters of baptism administered this morning, but also as we contemplate the administration of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, All of us are called to examine our own heart and see if we are honestly casting all of our hope upon grace, excluding all human merit, knowing that in and of ourselves, we and our children by nature are children of wrath and are underneath the condemnation of a holy and a just God. But God in Christ has established His covenant with us and with our children. Notice also the description of the parties. The first party, if you uh, allow the use of that terminology, of course, is the sovereign God. The Elohim. The one who we heard about last Sunday evening and the Sunday evening before that in our Belgian Confession series, Uh, The one only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and so the biblical text clearly emphasizes, uh, the Lord says in verse 7, and I will establish my covenant. Notice the I and the my. Uh, they, They are not the Lord and Abraham. They are not equal parties. With with some type of bilateral agreement where God says, well, Abraham, if you will walk before me and be blameless, then I will be your God. He comes in His sovereignty. And that sovereignty also emphasizes the gracious character of the establishment of this relationship. And I will establish My covenant with you. And then notice also, and Peter picks this up in his Pentecostal sermon, quoting from this text, showing the bridge, you might say, of the covenant of grace from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and your descendants after you. And of course, that is what undergirds the administration of the sacrament of baptism, not only to those of us who believe, but also to our children and to our children's children. And that indicates the second party. The second party in the historical manifestation of the administration of the covenant is the children, the children of believers. And so we must have a right understanding of our children that by God's gracious sovereignty, they have been included within this relationship. That God is pleased to work along the generational lines of the covenant. Now, there are exceptions. There are the Ruths and the Rahabs that are born outside of the historical administration of the covenant, but of course are elect and So have an eternal covenant with God also, and in time they manifest themselves within uh, the nation of Israel. And there are those, sadly, born within the realm or the sphere of the covenant who later reveal by their perpetual unbelief and their obstinate hardening of heart that they are those who are outside of the covenant. Uh, Those Ishmaels and Esau's, you might say. 
Nevertheless, the covenant that God has established in His sovereignty is with believers and their children. So that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 that the children of believers are sanctified, set apart, consecrated, unique. And you and I must then submit our view of our children to the authority of Holy Scripture. And as we describe this covenant, as we transition then to look a little bit more at the essence of the covenant, there, there ought to be, should there not, a sense of holy awe. Now there is a danger that we speak so frequently about the covenant and the covenant of grace and the covenant of grace made with our children that we lose something of the sense of the holy awe, something of the wonder that is taking place in Genesis 17. That the Lord God, the One who inhabits eternity, the One who is unchangeable and infinite in all of His perfections, that He in an act of grace would come down and establish a relationship of friendship with us. As we transition into our second point, I just ask, is there something of a holy sense of amazement? Or have we become overly familiar with this whole doctrine truth of the covenant of grace. Because if we look at the essence of this covenant, it is the re-establishment of fellowship. And so in verse 7, uh, you find the very heartbeat uh, of the covenant of grace where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. To be God to you. Of course, you have to read this as our baptism form does uh, in the light of what has transpired in the biblical history of Revelation. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to have fellowship with God, to walk with God, to talk with God. Uh, however, sin entered into the world through the instigation of the devil uh, and even Adam rebelled against God. And by their rebellious, sinful action, cast themselves into misery, the misery that is alienation from God. They then became not only strangers of God, but you might say, in and of their own human nature, enemies of God, so that they were without hope, without God in the world. And this, of course, was signified by their banishment from out of the garden and away from the tree of life. Now, of course, we know God had an eternal plan and that it was not plan B, but that rather it was plan A, that He would exalt Himself in His Son through the redemptive kingdom that would come ultimately uh, through the historical work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but you can think of Adam and Eve as they, who were created to be in fellowship with God as they hid themselves from God. And that's what man, male, female, does by nature. But the essence of the covenant of grace is that this warm relationship of fellowship is restored. So that in not in any type of superficial way, not, not like you say on social media, well I have 673 friends on my account, many of them who you don't even really know and many of them who you probably never really interact with. Now, that's not the idea here when God says, I will be your God. 
But nevertheless, the wonder of the covenant of grace in its very essence is that those who by nature are alienated from God by their own sinful rebellion are now called not only the people of God, but the friends of God. James 2, verse 23 says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, boys and girls... You have friends? I think most of you probably do. You have good friends? Good friends in the sense that they don't talk behind your back. They don't gossip about you. They're not mean to you. They laugh when you laugh. And maybe they cry when you cry. They care for you. They're concerned for you. Teenagers, I hope you have friends. Again, good friends. But now step back and think that the covenant child of God is a friend of God. And again, I simply ask, does this warm your heart? Does this overwhelm your soul? That no matter what else can be said about your self-identity, well, I am this old and I am this vocation and I am in this relationship. Above it all, there is this remarkable understanding. I, by grace, am a friend of God. Because He has established this covenant relationship with me. Including these remarkable benefits that because I am a friend of God, I have peace with God. There is a restored harmony. We are not at enmity. We are not at odds. I experience something of His favor as it shines down upon me day by day. And now, of course, this is not based upon my own works, but this is based upon the forgiveness of sins so that I have peace with God, says the covenant child, as they reflect upon the wonder of the covenant of grace. I have peace with God because my sins have been forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in that beautiful passage in Colossians 2, that the handwriting that was against us, that is all of our sins, has been dealt with and it has been nailed to the cross once and for all definitively so that when Satan and my own doubts come within my soul and begin to drag up the reality of my sins, I can say, Satan, if you want to look at my sins, you have to go to Calvary. You have to go to the cross. Take it up there. Don't come and accuse me in my soul of my sin. I recognize the reality of my sin and the severity of my sin. But by faith, I also know that my sins have been dealt with there and that Jesus Christ has proclaimed triumphantly, it is finished. And that having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of this is based upon the mediator of the covenant. The mediator of the covenant. And a mediator, boys and girls and young people and for all of us, a mediator is a person who is appointed to bring about a reconciliation between two persons who are at odds. So going back to the analogy of friends. Maybe you have a group of friends. Uh, and friend 
number one and friend number three aren't getting along and you're friend number two. And so you go and you say, okay, friend number one and friend number three, we're all friends. We've got to clear the air. There needs to be the expression of repentance or of sorrow or of an apology. Maybe clarification for miscommunication. But we're all friends. So that's something of the role of mediator. But it's even greater when considered the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not just friend A and friend C on equal status, but it is the infinitely holy God as the party who has been offended and who has not done anything offensive. And it is sinful human beings, you and me, who have done everything to offend the Holy God. And now here's the remarkable thing about the covenant of grace. It is not the offensing party that takes the step to bring about a restoration, but it is the offended party in His infinite holiness God comes to bring about reconciliation through the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ takes upon Himself our very own human nature and assumes all of the obligations to satisfy divine justice. So that all of the conditions are met of a perfect fulfillment of the law, what theologians call the act of righteousness of Christ, that He keeps every single commandment perfectly. Not so that He can somehow earn something. He's divine. He's the eternal Son of God. So that that perfect righteousness might be imputed, transferred, credited into our account. And then He takes all of our guilt upon Himself, becoming a curse for us. This remarkable transaction that takes place in the accomplishment of redemption through the one mediator. And it is my obligation this morning in the midst of a pluralistic world to proclaim to you clearly on the authority of Scripture to young and old, but especially to young people, there is only one mediator. And it's not the Pope. And it's not even some type of religious person, some type of leader within the church. The one and only mediator is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 8, verse 6 says, the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So don't ever fall for the lie of this culture that there are many ways to find spiritual fulfillment and spiritual peace. That there are many avenues, but they all lead to the one destination of some eternal utopia. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell itself. There is only one mediator. The God-man. Jesus Christ. And it's only by His blood that there is reconciliation between the offending party, you and I, and the offended party, God Himself. Well, if we understand these things we can turn our attention to our third point, the response to this covenant. Uh, you'll notice that our baptism form says in all covenants there are two parts. There is the promise. And the promise in essence is God says, I will be your God. And you will be my people. Included in that promise is, I will provide a mediator. 
And I will accomplish all that is necessary for reconciliation, for the forgiveness of your sins, and for your eternal life. But God also comes with this obligation. Now the obligation is fulfilled within the elect by the grace of God. We might say it this way, God gives that which He requires. But He says to Abraham, apply circumcision. Walk before Me and be blameless. Not so that you may become parties in the covenant, but because you are a party in the covenant. Now we could boil this all down and say the response is to be that of faith. Faith, that is, the knowledge and the trust in this covenant arrangement of our sovereign God. And we anticipate... And I've sought over a number of years to find the best word. I don't know that anticipate is the best word, but it's the best one that I've been able to come up with. We don't want to use the word presumption or presume, but we anticipate that within the hearts of our children, in an age-appropriate way, through the seed of regeneration coming to blossom and flourish, uh, just like uh, a tulip in the spring, the bulb is there. And when the sunlight begins to shine upon it, out comes forth the flower. We anticipate, we look with expectation as we labor in the instruction of our covenantal children that they will begin to show the evidences of a regenerated heart, the evidence of faith and of repentance. Now we do not presume in the sense that we don't call them to that activity. But we anticipate, and so we say to our children, you are members of the covenant of grace. God has made an eternal promise to us through Jesus Christ that He will be our God. Therefore, we are called to believe in this one true triune God. We are called to walk in a unique life. Not only of faith, but also in the fruits of faith, that of holiness and that of obedience, especially also displayed in acts of worship. And so I well remember, I don't think I'll ever forget as long as I have my senses with me, uh, an elder in my former charge, in my former congregation, and it's not novel with him, but he would often say, referring to covenant children, we must remind them continually who they are and whose they are. And I do just that, or attempt to do just that this morning to every single young person here and every single boy and girl. You belong to God Almighty. And you no doubt do not remember it, but there was a day in which the water of baptism was placed upon your forehead. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said to you, I will be your God. And you shall be my son or my daughter. And we shall be friends. And you will have peace and the forgiveness of sins. Now therefore believe and continue to believe. And walk before me and be blameless. But notice also that there is a dangerous temptation to respond to the covenant in unbelief. There is the reality of Ishmael. He received, as the text narrates, 
in his external body, the sign and the seal of the covenant, but he was not in that essential relationship. He imitated, sadly, Esau. In rejecting the the blessings of the covenant of God. Walking in his own way, following after this world, and it breaks the pastor's heart and it breaks many a parent heart uh, to have a young person depart from the faith through neglect or through some type of animosity to all that was set before them. Yes, with many imperfections. But by Christian parents and by Christian elders and Sunday school teachers uh, and catechism instructors and pastors and then to have a young person come to the age of discretion or the age of maturity and, and go off like the prodigal son and waste their life in riotous living, thinking that what this world has to offer is anything of real lasting endurance. Now, yes, we well know that the father in that parable daily, it appeared, stood at the road looking for the son's return. And we well know that the son did come to his senses as he was wallowing in the pig mire and he returned to his father's house. So two words by way of closing application. If anyone in this room or through these radio waves or through the internet hears these words in the position of the prodigal son, maybe you were born and baptized in the church, maybe you can remember the Sunday school and the catechism classes and the sermons and your parents' instruction and Christian education, but now you are wasting your life in riotous living to you, I say come home. Come home through faith and repentance. Your Father will receive you if you come home in repentance and faith with joy. But also know that if you don't return, you continue to live a life of unbelief. There is nothing but continual misery. For peace, real happiness, real joy, eternal security, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life is only found in this covenant relationship where God promises sovereignly, I will be your God through the work of my Son, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by grace, the child then says, And I will be your child. And I will walk with you in the way of faith and the fruits of faith, that of holiness. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do lift up our hearts now in prayer as we contemplate something of these remarkable truths that You have revealed concerning the covenant of grace. And we stand amazed that You would establish such a covenant with us. We ask that we might understand something of its significance, but also something of its beauty. And that understanding we might respond continually with faith and with repentance. So strengthen our faith, but we also do lift up in prayer those who have wandered from their Father's house. We ask that You would draw them back uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, so that the table of our Heavenly Father might be fully occupied, For we know the promise that You give us. That You, through Your Son Jesus Christ, will lose none of Your people. And so we ask that that might give us confidence as we face the future. We pray this in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.